COVID-19 injected massive disruption into the meat supply chain throughout the first half of 2020. From plant shutdown supply shocks to food service shutdown demand shocks, the animal protein markets have been rocked on a variety of fronts seemingly all year long. But what about the consumers of meat? How has a global pandemic and relatively unprecedented economic uncertainty affected their purchasing habits and preferences? Welcome to Feedstuffs in Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we talk with one of the foremost academic experts on consumer trends and preferences in the meat space and hear about his research into what meat buyers are thinking about heading into the final months of 2020. This episode of Feedstuffs in Focus is sponsored by Topics Norsven, the second largest swine genetics company in the world. Topics Norsven's unique breeding program is designed to accelerate genetic progress at the customer level by creating innovative products and solutions that benefit the entire pork production chain. To get more information, visit topicsnorsven.us. Jason Lusk is Distinguished Professor and Head of the Department of Agricultural Economics at Purdue University. Full disclosure, I did my graduate studies in Dr. Lusk's department at Purdue. Prior to joining the Boilermakers, he earned a B.S. in food technology and a Ph.D. in agriculture economics from Kansas State University and was previously the Regents Professor and Willard Sparks Endowed Chair in the Department of Agricultural Economics at Oklahoma State University. Dr. Losk is food and agricultural economist extraordinaire who studies what we eat and why we eat it. Since 2000, he's published more than 200 journal articles in peer-reviewed journals, including several of the most cited papers in the profession, and has served on the editorial councils of eight academic journals. In addition, he's published several books on topics ranging from farm animal welfare to consumer reactions to farming practices and technologies. So, Dr. Lusk, as we start talking about consumer sentiment and, and consumer uh, willingness to pay, what consumers are thinking when it comes to animal-derived proteins in, in their food shopping basket. You've kind of become uh, one of the foremost experts in, in tracking that because of the research you've done for many years now on, on an ongoing basis. So let's start with a baseline. For folks who aren't familiar with your, your work, kind of explain uh, in a nutshell your elevator speech for that monthly consumer research that you do uh, as part of your, your ongoing line of inquiry. For a while now, we've been sending a survey to a, a thousand U.S. consumers every month, um, asking mainly about meat demand, but a whole host of other issues, whether they've heard of, of particular issues in the news, how concerned they are about a set of issues, spending on food at home and away from home. It, it discontinued a little bit when I moved universities, but my um, friend and colleague, Glenn Tonser at Kansas State, has picked up that effort, and so we've been able to continue that now for, you know, it's probably been seven or eight years that we have this long stretch of information. So that's been very helpful. And, and it's not the end all be all, you know, we know people can say things on surveys that aren't always true, but the trends that, that can be picked up in these data, I think are informative. And then when we merge that data with other data sets, uh, I think uh, the combination of those two things is where we can really start picking up some really neat insights. Yeah, I love that, you know, because the caveat for, for years has, has been, you know, surveys are great, but we lie to survey takers, you know, whether we're talking about politics or purchasing habits or whatever it is, the, 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 the things that we say versus what we do don't always line up, but, but I love how you describe that. Let's, let's see what they actually do when we look at 
uh, cash register data and a whole host of other data sources that you have. So let's, let's look at that. If, if we um, look at meat demand, meat purchasing preferences, this has been kind of a weird year in the meat market, right? Uh, <laughs> this whole global pandemic has, has kind of turned seasonality, has turned normal purchasing trends on its, on its head. Uh, before we get into the effects of COVID, let's go back eight months now and in the early, you know, two months, let's say of 2020 before we were all talking all COVID all the time. What was the baseline? What were consumers <laughs> thinking about meat and, and what were they buying and what kind of trends were you watching as a researcher at that time? Your, your memory goes back to the pre-COVID world. I'm <laughs> I, I know it's hard to believe there was a time pre-COVID, but let's pretend there was. And what would that alternate universe look like? <laughs> well, it's hard for me to remember now. So much has happened since then. But if if memory serves me correct, um, you know, there there was sort of some optimism on meat demand side, mainly because I think of, it, you know, interest in exports. Um, you know, we, we were anticipating, particularly on pork, but other products to demand from China with their problems they're having with African swine fever. You can see that in, in the inventory data. So we're adding animals in anticipation of some positive demand growth. Um, so, you know, I think on the demand side, at least things were looking pretty good in January and February. And, and I think there was, you know, an anticipation of, uh, oh, for some folks, a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I've heard somebody say, well, unfortunately that light was a, was a train, <laughs> but, um, but I think that was the prevailing mood for amongst some folks in the first part of the year. What were consumers thinking or talking about or watching? Were there any, was there anything unusual uh, or, or was it fairly well status quo in terms of things like uh, willingness to pay and, and just what had consumer hackles up? I mean, I remember a time when we were talking a lot about, uh, animal protein alternatives, or we were all wrapped up about uh, the Impossible Burger and some of these other kind of things. Like, were those were those the key key things that you were watching or talking with consumers about pre-COVID? Definitely. So, you know, these days I could you know give a presentation every day about COVID impacts. Uh, before that, it was uh, the the plant-based alternatives and the lab-based alternatives. So that that was really very much I think on the minds of a lot of folks in the industry. Now, how much was it on the mind of the consumers is maybe a little different story. And uh, maybe we you know as we go along here, you can remind me to talk a little bit about what happened to those plant-based sales during yes. COVID. Some things were interesting, and other things that um, maybe were not so anticipated. But um, but we had done some research on that topic um, that that I think was really interesting, suggesting that you know that that market share for that could grow. There was you know higher you know there's upside potential there relative to the very small shares we have now. Uh, but you know still, if all prices are sort of the same, most consumers say they want you know the real deal, the real beef. Um, and um, you know I don't think that's probably changed a lot during the pandemic necessarily. Yeah, well, and that was going to be my my follow up question was, when you look at what consumers said, what they ultimately bought, I, I had this just vague impression and in going into 2020, that maybe we in the industry were a lot more worried about these alternatives than maybe consumers were actually interested in those alternatives was like that way maybe we had worked ourselves up into a tempest in a teapot kind of scenario. Well, I mean, it's pretty clear why why you would do that because you have uh, some of the creators of these products claiming their goal is to put <laughs> beef uh, you know the meat industry out of business so they're, they're not shy about it are they no um and so that they're it's not just 
you know, some hypothetical out there in the sense that there's a competitor that has their eyes on you, but I don't think it's an overblown issue. I still think it's a very significant threat. Um, the question is, you know, I don't think it's industry threatening. I think it's profitability threatening on some mm -hmm. level. And um, so I think it's wise to pay attention to it, but you're, you're right. You know, we got it. We do whip ourselves up to, into a fervor sometimes on these topics. You know, another uh, thing I think this maybe can maybe lead us a little bit towards the COVID, but maybe one statistic to kind of keep in mind is uh, about over a little over half, I think about 54% of every dollar spent on food is away from home. Mm -hmm. uh, now that's, the volume of food is lower, maybe sure. a thir third roughly of food is away from home. But, um, you know, the sort of trend, we had seen, you know, a number of trends in that industry, particularly, you know, this is going back a few years, but sort of, you know, trends towards more, you know, chicken joints and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of proliferation on the fast food side or quick casual dining side there. Um, and I think there was some strength there. And I think that, that you know, is something that when we get get to the COVID situation really mattered a lot well let's let's go ahead and go there uh, so <laughs> okay. with the, the backdrop of uh, the things that we've just been talking about you know that that optimism maybe light at the end of the tunnel for some sectors and then it turns out to be the train barreling down the tracks at us we we wake up one day and uh you know nobody knew there was a global pandemic going on and then suddenly we all knew i'm being facetious about the you know no, nobody knew but we we wound up suddenly with consumers facing shutdown, stay at home, lockdown orders, whatever you want to call them, it drastically changed lifestyle mm -hmm. for, for a number of folks. So when you start looking at data and, and doing your ongoing research, what, what trends emerged? I mean, the things we were talking about certainly in the news were uh, meatpacking capacity and mm -hmm. shortages of toilet paper and, uh, you know, paying more or less for certain products at retail. What were you seeing in, in the data? So what, what we can see, maybe on the sentiment side, I'll just mention one really remarkable statistic. There's uh, University of Michigan runs a consumer sentiment survey. It's not about food. It's just more sort of general attitudes about the economy going back to the fifties. Um, this, I believe if I'm not mistaken, the single largest monthly drop in that consumer sentiment index since the 1950s occurred between uh, March and April. Um, so that gives you a sense of the scale of impact on consumers thinking about their financial well-being and the overall economy. So on the food side, um, you know, the, the first thing that happened were these two big demand shocks. The, the fall, the destruction of demand for food service and restaurants at the exact same time as the spike in demand at grocery. And you can see those things in the data you know, as clear as night and day. It doesn't take it a, a PhD economist to see that right. happen. And, you know, that's really obvious in the data from, uh, you know, mid to late March and early April. Big spike in sales, uh, you know, really across the board, but also for meat, uh, particularly for meat, um, in grocery stores. We don't have as fine-tuned data uh, on the food away from home, but you can see a whole bunch of different kinds of data sets like restaurant visits, uh, foot traffic at restaurants, all just basically crater, uh, essentially. Now, you know, within a pretty short time period, you know, a couple of weeks, those those data kind of, re you know, reverted to something a little more normal, although not normal entirely. So um, if you look at things like foot traffic to grocery stores, a lot of, you know, everybody ran out to the grocery store in March. Uh, then that kind of died back down into sort of regular levels, but spending at grocery stores is still higher. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is 
you know, for two reasons. One, people are having groceries delivered to their home and on each trip, they're putting more in their basket. Um, so sales in grocery stores are still today running 10 to 20% above mm -hmm. where they were last year, but it's still the case. We, you know, we had that big drop off in restaurant um, sales started to recover. And if you did, you know, at a pretty nice rate, and if you'd have just drawn a trend line, you would have predicted that by say, you know, middle of July, we'd be spending, you know, sort of regular um, food, food away from home. Uh, unfortunately, we started to get these resurgence of cases, a bunch of governments, state, local governments started, you know, putting more restrictions on eating out. And so it's just stagnated. So, you know, it depends on the location, but, you know, we're still running, you know, 30, 40% below last year levels. So, you know, that's sort of the big high points. I mean, I think on the consumer side, I think people got a little confused in the middle of the packing plant shutdowns. Like that was a supply side shock. Right. And of course, consumers paid attention to it. Uh, but that was a supply driven phenomenon, not a demand driven one. And so I think, you know, I make that distinction because as I talk to sort of general consumers, they, they kind of conflate all these things in their sure. mind. But the, but the big demand shocks were the ones that happened really in, um, you know, that March, April period, and then we're still living with them today. Um, if you don't mind, I'm kind of, you know, going on a, a bit of a ramble here, but I want to get back to that plant-based thing because I think this is interesting. So yeah. it, it was interesting to me, even in our local grocery stores, in that initial stocking out period, if you just asked me to predict what would happen, okay, it makes sense people are going to stock up on this kind of staple items like rice, pasta, the, the shelf stable things. But, you know, the meat counter here in West Lafayette was just completely gone. Yes. And I thought that was really remarkable because this is, you know, it's a fresh item. It's a relatively expensive item. And yet mm -hmm. consumers, uh, you know, wanted it, <laughs> they, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we can talk about all the maybe psychological reasons that why that happened. But the point is they did. Yeah. And it was not necessarily something I would have predicted. And we can see that in the data. So sales and meat, uh, for all meat products was, were, was up, you know, almost hundred percent in that early period before kind of coming back down a bit. Uh, and you can see that in the plant-based sales too. So there's lots of pictures on Twitter at the time. It was like, you know, where the plant-based stuff was still left in the, in the grocery right. aisle. People got to it last, but the point is they got to it. And, yeah. and I think there's a couple of points about it that I think are maybe interesting for your listeners. One is the, the increase in sales that I see, you know, reported, we're, we're like 150 to 200% increase. But, you know, those percents are tricky. It's, it, you get a big percentage growth when you start from a small number. So you right. go from one to, you know, one to two, that's 100% increase if you go from 100 to 101 that's only a one percent increase so some of those big percentage increases were really just a function i think of the market being really small most of the scanner data i've seen suggests you know those plant-based alternatives are you know far less than one percent of overall sales the other interesting phenomenon and then i'll let you actually ask me another question is <laughs> uh when we were in the worst of the meatpacking shutdowns uh so think late april uh early may uh you, if you look at the sales of plant-based products in grocery stores there's essentially no change i mean mm -hmm. it it was you're still running above last year but no like you know fluctuation there that's interesting to me because you would think this is a time grocery stores are saying you can't buy more than two pounds some grocery stores didn't have enough availability right. and yet we don't see us another spike there in sales of the plant-based alternatives and I think that speaks to some other survey-based research we've done that suggests that a lot of the people that are buying these products are people that wouldn't have been buying a lot of meat to begin with. They're new, you know, they're, you know, a lot of them are vegetarians, not all, of course, um, but they're, they're sort of, you know, when we talk about market share, they're 
making the size of the pie bigger um, mm -hmm. by adding to the number of people we count in the meat category, but not necessarily causing a lot of people to substitute away from the traditional products. Now, some of that is happening, but I think that period there in, in April and May was a real, really interesting to see in the, in the grocery store scanner data, not to see a big spike in plant-based sales at that time. When you start to pull apart some of those data points and look at what consumers were or, or are buying now eight months into this, have we seen, I don't want to say winners and losers per se, but has, has one sector or, or the other, and I'm thinking like you know, beef versus pork versus chicken, uh, you know, been a bigger beneficiary at retail, uh, understanding that everybody's losing at, at food service to some extent still, but has, has one or the other done better at retail than the other or and then how did that i guess compare to what your expectation expectations or assumption would have been ahead yeah. of time so yes and even within a species there's there's lots of difference in the early part of the pandemic as we were adjusting to this new world of not having food service you could see price trends for example of, of pork bellies falling uh, at the same time that pork loins were increasing yeah. um and that's probably just a, a sheer reflection of the fact that you know bellies a lot of bellies go to making bacon in restaurants and maybe right. more more than a lot of folks even thought um now a lot of those you know the kind of packing plant things cause sort of everything to move together up in an upward direction in terms of retail prices mm -hmm. um in in and so you know they kind of benefited is not the right word but if we're just looking looking at price impacts mm -hmm. um prices got pulled up for, for a lot of those products. So, you know, but I think it really does this, you know, distinction between food away from home and food at home, really, I think it drives a lot of who the winners and losers are. And you can imagine even things like wings, for example, mm -hmm. of, you know, away from home. And I, I, I have to, somebody on your, you know, one of your listeners is going to yell at me because I haven't actually looked at the data on wings, <laughs> but, you know, uh, but, but, you know, a lot of those get sold through food service establishments. Sure. And with those, you know, largely shuttered, you know, my anticipation would be that the net effect is something not as positive. At the same time, there's big income effects happening too. People yeah. lost their jobs, incomes have fallen. That's going to tend to favor lower priced products, um, mm -hmm. at both within a species and across species. So I think, you know, if it's on the beef side, the ground uh, things, the, um, you know, even if you look look at relative comparisons of beef versus pork loins, it's probably going to favor the pork side. So there's some of that kind of stuff that I think, you know, I'd expect income effects to be coming through here. Lastly, um, I think this is a result of the packing plant shutdowns, but, you know, the way products were getting de delivered to stores, you know, really different, more whole muscle cuts, more vacuum packaged products. I saw that here in my own local grocery stores uh, in, in, you know, less kind of, case ready because as pack plants were trying to reconfigure their lines to get product out the door and, and less labor available in the in the, mm -hmm. in the plants to deal with it that also affected things i don't i don't i think that's a really good research question i don't know the data on that but what how did that affect consumer demand i don't know you know if you're a guy like me it was kind of beneficial because i you know i'll buy a whole loin and cut it up and yes. put it in my freezer you know i don't know <laughs> I, but i know i'm not the regular typical consumer so for me some of those are some good deals if you knew to, to watch out for them Oh, we got a kick out of our, our local uh, meat counter manager. The one, one weekend I went in and had some brisket flats uh, in, in the case. And I said, Hey, you got any full packers back there? And he looked at me like I had two heads, you know, he's like, what? 
what, what do you mean? I'm like, well, you know, hey, I'm, I'm looking for some deals here and I'd rather smoke the whole, the whole packer than just the flat. Come on, let's, uh, let's play ball. But, and I do the same thing as you do, you know, go to our local warehouse store and, and, and buy a whole loin and we'll uh, slice those up and have, but not every consumer does that. Now at the same time, my question for you is somebody who's then dealing with kind of consumer sentiment as well. I have a, you know, an impression or you've seen some one-off stories here and there that maybe consumers are learning some of those things out of necessity because they're starting to see some of those, uh, like say vacuum sealed products instead of case ready products showing up and they're like, Oh, Hey, what do I do with a whole Boston? But I've never, mm-hmm. I've never heard of this before. Like, are you, can we, can we find that in the data? Yeah. You know, I, so that's a great question and that's not a particular issue that I've been, you know, querying people on. Certainly, I think it's the case that more people, we can see this in the data, more people are cooking sure. at home. Um, and, uh, you know, people probably, if you're like us, you know, you get sick of the same few things you make all the time. So, uh, you know, there, there is a tendency for folks to want to branch out and learn yeah. some new things. And I think that's probably anecdotally, anecdotally at least has got to be happening on some level one thing this is not exactly the question you answered but we've we've done a little bit of research on these things there there seem to be a lot of anecdotal evidence there was kind of a spike in demand among consumers for more local more kind of direct to consumer mm-hmm. um, we actually had some surveys we were doing before and after the the pandemic and we aren't really seeing much change in in their sort of preference for localness per se. And in fact, on some things like, you know, this would be on the produce side, but uh, farmer's market versus grocery store, urban garden versus grocery store. Actually, you know, if anything, demand for in the grocery store increased relative to those others. That kind of makes sense from the standpoint of people want to stay socially distanced. Um, And I I, I say that to say it runs a little bit counter to some of the narratives we've heard that there's been a big increase in demand for direct delivery to consumers. A lot of that's come on the meat side. and I think that's true. I've talked to enough kind of small packers to know they had a big, you know, swell and demand of consumer mm-hmm. interest but but I got to also marry that with what data we do have <laughs> and right. and at least you just take that average consumer there just has it we we aren't seeing a big change in that so to speak even though I think there's a lot of anecdotal discussion and sort of data points among local smaller kind of packers that they're seeing some of that one of the things you mentioned earlier that I want to circle back to is talking about the income effect so we you know we can't ignore kind of the macroeconomic situation we're in where a lot of folks lost their jobs, furloughed, laid off, and the, what stimulus programming there has been is uh, expiring. And we don't necessarily, your crystal balls as good as mine, I suppose, don't necessarily have a clear view in sight of, of what the next round of stimulus is going to look like if there is going to be one or if we're going to leave consumers to their fate. So with, with all that as backdrop, how, how much more difficult is it trying to pull apart some of these different effects of the different levers when you're looking at the consumer trends and trying to figure out, all right, what was a preference versus I'm worried about paying the mortgage, so I'm not buying steaks and, and center cut chops. I'm buying ground products and so on. Yeah. Like how because all these factors kind of get muddled up in the stew, right? They do. And it's, you're right. It's hard in the moment to, 
to disentangle all those things. And what we do in academics is we write a paper that's five years later that <laughs> disentangles those, you know, with decimal point precision. But in the moment, it's it's very, very hard to sort those things out. Now, um, so couple, there's the income kind of effects. You know, a good thing about food is people got to eat. And gotta so eat. In, in, in general, food is, you know, to use some economics lingo, is a normal good. When incomes rise, people, you know, want more food. Mm -hmm. But it's also you know, it's not proportional. And, and that's what I mean by the people got to eat is even when incomes fall, people don't generally reduce their food consumption as much as some other things. They, it is a more discretionary part of a, of, a, a, of, of a budget, but it's still something people have to do. But what they can do is substitute qualities and, and different products. And we see that, you know, happening maybe more on a disaggregate level. The other thing people, the other dimension here too is time allocation. So, um, there's a lot of interesting studies about when people retire, they, you know, lose their job. And all of a sudden you've got a bunch of extra time on your hands. What do you do with that time? And one of the things you do is you substitute, you know, your, your, you know, the things you can buy in the market for your time. So you cook more, mm -hmm. uh, you, you buy more products that you can maybe stew at home or something like that. You eat out less. Sure. Um, so, you know, we're eating out less now because of the pandemic, but that actually is a big, in, that's one of the bigger categories of an income effect is normally, you know, if we have enough money, we let somebody cook and clean up for us. But, but sure. when our incomes fall, we, we use our time to do those things for ourselves. And so I think it relates back to the question you were saying before, but I think that's sort of one of those things we're seeing people doing is using their time as they have more time at home, at least among some people, um, to, to cook different kinds of food, to buy different kinds of products they wouldn't have otherwise. There's a great quote. I've used it for probably my entire adult life. I think, I think I want to attribute it to the author. Roy Williams wrote a great trilogy called the wizard of ads, um, and kind of about running businesses and advertising and marketing. But he said, put it this way, time and money are inversely related. You will spend more of one to save the other. And we're seeing that playing out in, in real time, right? Because mm -hmm. just, just what you described, we, we, uh, pre pandemic had a bit of a habit after church on Sunday. Why? we would stop at a local uh, Italian chain restaurant. I, I won't name drop, but uh, a, a larger Italian uh, chain restaurant. And, you know, for our family, we might drop uh, tip included 50 some dollars on that meal after church on Sunday. Well, gosh, we can make that same meal bought 10 times at the grocery mm -hmm. store with, with uh, more or less the same ingredients. And that's, that's what you're, what, what you're describing there. And uh, I think that's what makes this, the story of this summer when you had at the academic level get around to writing that five-year retrospective I mean it's going to make it really interesting to try to pull apart what the heck happened with all of these different uh, factors happening at one time yeah I mean the other driver here that that will change behavior is price and, and that you know I mentioned this kind of supply side distinction there but we saw some of the I talked about the monthly changes you know the the a monthly change from uh, I think it was April to May or it could have been May to June in retail uh, meat prices mm -hmm. that that spike there I guess I should say overall food prices that increase was as high monthly increase was as high as we've seen since the 1970s and most of that was coming from meat uh, particularly beef and so you know that consumers are going to cut back some just because of that now fortunately mm -hmm. we're seeing that starting to come back down a little bit um, and so that that's not a change in preference but you're going to change the quantity you buy because yep. the, the prices uh, are not as favorable for you now again I think we've seen some, from the consumer's perspective, some improvement uh, on that, um, especially compared to the worst, the worst parts of this pandemic. 
I want to kind of leave our listeners maybe on this note as we wrap up our conversation together with, with Professor Jason Lusk of Purdue University. Um, when you're now kind of looking ahead, I want to shift. We've been kind of looking through the rearview mirror. I want to look out the windshield now. What are the things that you, as as a watcher of these trends, are are watching right now and thinking? You know, as we close out this dance party that has been 2020, here are the things I'm keyed up about in Q4 heading into a new year. What are the trends that you're keeping an eye on now? Yeah, I mean, I'll bring it back full circle to some of the things we were watching before the pandemic, but trade has reemerged as a big issue. And actually, we've seen some real strength in particularly pork prices that, that seem to be coming from China uh, and some some strengthening demand there. So I think paying attention to what what's happening on that front is another one. Uh, I, we've already talked about the plant based meat alternatives. So I'm not going to go into that again, but I think that's still one to keep keep an eye on, keep a watch out for. Uh, what else? We got an election coming up. Um, and while that, you know, I hadn't heard it. I hadn't heard about that. Is that <laughs> yeah, we haven't. I know. It's break, breaking wait. breaking news. <laughs> right. I'm shocked to hear that. Even in Ohio, I'm, uh, <laughs> as a battleground state. But um, you know, that doesn't have a direct effect per se on demand. But if you know, if it takes months to get this thing settled, and I sure hope it doesn't, um, that creates a lot of consumer uncertainty. But also, you know, administrations have their own policies. If we get a change in administration and, the, you know, you look at polls right now, you could get a whole sweep of, you know, you know, both the, you know, legislative and uh, president, you know, executive branch. And, you know, what does that mean in terms of potential, you know, new environmental regulations or even, you know, how, uh, you know, health guidelines come out? You know, I think or those trade. things or trade yeah exactly so all those things i think are going to probably be affected by the election but we're just going to have to hold on and see how that happens jason lusk always a pleasure boiler up and uh thanks for sharing your your expertise with us on feedstuffs in focus thanks andy thanks to our sponsor for this episode topics norsven topics norsven has made natural selection for robustness a priority in the breeding programs for its tn tempo terminal sire and tn 70 parent female Selecting for specific natural resistance to PERS, as well as overall robustness characteristics to further enhance the production performance of TN Tempo and TN70 offspring. The robustness advantage of the TN Tempo has been verified by independent research. Their customers report improved piglet vitality, uniformity, and barn throughput as well. Learn more about TN Tempo at TNTempo.com. My thanks to Professor Jason Lusk of Purdue University for his insights into several trends and issues in the meat markets. For the latest reporting on COVID-19 and other meat production, marketing, and consumption-related stories, visit our website, feedstuffs.com. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs In Focus. Thanks for joining us today. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, Subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platforms, including Apple and Google, or you can check out our website, feedstuffs.com, for future episodes. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.